Greetings and welcome to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. As always, I'm your host, Kevin Weber. And as always, I've got several little segments for you this episode. I'm going to talk about stoicism in umpiring. Um, If you don't know the term, I'll do a little explaining of that. And also, obviously, you might notice as part of my uh, episode title. I'm going to talk about working... um, Working COVID mechanics, a couple things with that. Working the strike zone with that, and um, you know how two man mechanics might work with that. That uh, I've heard about from uh, a fellow umpire. I'm going to talk about uh, my thoughts on assigning. I've been asked to, to share some of those, and also um, umpire equipment. And uh, I've, I've touched on that before, but I've been asked to do it again. And I'll give you some of my thoughts on on umpire equipment and things that are important um, to think about as far as your purchases. Because, you know, we spend our hard-earned money, usually parts of our game fees, uh, to do that. So that's something that we want to make sure that we uh, make some wise investments with, right? We're kind of getting into uh, fall umpiring season for what it's going to be here in 2020, which, of course, is different than most years. Here in the state of Michigan, they canceled high school football for the fall. They're going to try to play it in the spring. Um, so like everything, there's doors that open and doors that close because of this. And so I think that might make um, some of the teenage teenagers and, and younger groups have more fall ball, uh, at least in our area, because of that. Um, but also... The problem, too, is that there will probably be no opportunities or very few opportunities for college fall ball that um, some of us usually get. I know I usually get a handful of games here and there uh, as far as, you know, college-age guys, and I don't know if any of those are going to be coming my way. But I might get some other opportunities otherwise, and, and I'll have some opportunities to assign some of those games. The other interesting thing about this is how is this going to play out in the fall if they play football, I don't know exactly how they're going to um, work this out, but they want to kind of space out the season so guys that play both football and baseball might be able to do that. So if they go like March to May or something for football, and then they start baseball May and then extend it into July, usually we are done here in, in Michigan for high school baseball by the middle of June most years, but they're talking about maybe extending that it's going to be interesting. That'll affect travel teams as well because you're not supposed to be playing high school baseball if you're also playing travel ball at the same time. You can't do them both at the same time. So that's going to affect those tournaments. There's a lot of people that make a lot of money off of those tournaments, um, including umpires. You know, um, So some of those opportunities might be less as far as the older kids go, You know, the high school age kids. So, um, yeah, it's gonna like I say, doors open, doors close. Um, there'll be some opportunities at times that normally aren't there. There'll be some opportunities taken away. Hopefully, um, hopefully this stuff will get back to normal at some point. But it looks like even into 2021, this is definitely going to be um, affecting everybody. And if you're somebody that works multiple sports and you work football and baseball, then you have to make some choices on those kind of things. Yeah, it's going to be kind of crazy. But, you know, we take it one day at a time and uh, control the things that we can control and uh, do what we can do and make the best of it, right? Anyway, sit back and listen to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast.
Well, as I've mentioned before, I am a high school teacher. Um, that's my main thing that I do. I teach uh, uh, U.S. history and uh, English, and I've been doing that for well over 20 years, okay? And uh, that's how I pay my bills. Obviously, uh, umpiring is something that I do um, because I, I love it, and also the money you know, certainly helps to pay for things that uh, uh, are good for my family and, um, you know, opportunities and, you know, vacation or things like that. Anyway, this past week was my first week back um, as far as teachers. Uh, we usually have a couple of in-service days before the students come this next coming week here. And uh, this year I'm going to be teaching... Uh, U.S. history and um, 12th grade English, and we're trying to figure out how to do this with this hybrid model, and um, where we have a bunch of stuff online, and then we see students, you know, like a, only a certain amount of time, like we see half our students every every uh, every day um, in a particular class, like on Monday and Tuesday, then the other half on a Thursday and Friday, and then everybody's off on Wednesdays doing online stuff, and so... Anyway, it's going to be very interesting to figure this out. And one of the things that my principal talked about in our meeting was stoicism. And I really felt like this applied to, well, it can apply to anything in life, definitely your life. But it certainly can apply to the best umpires. I think the, um, the goal to become a stoic umpire is, a, is an excellent thing. Something that I try to strive for. There are times where I feel like I, I have accomplished that, and there are definitely times where I feel like I don't. Um, and so, what is stoicism? You know, well, in general, it's just optimism, but it's understanding that you can't control many things that happen, you only can control what you respond to that situation, how you respond to it. So we know when we um, when we start umpiring a baseball game, no matter what role we have in that game, we're working, working the plate, we're working the bases, whatever it might be, there are many, many things that are going to happen that we have no control over. However, we always have control over how we respond to it. And so, you know, sometimes we look at these things as um, obstacles or that they are a problem. But really, the obstacle um, or the issues that we have is really the path that we have to take or the way that we have to take in a particular game to get to the end and do the best job that we can and be the best umpire we can every game because every game is a little bit different. Yeah, we have similarities that happen frequently, but every game is its own story. All right. So your perception of it and um, then the actions that you take in handling it um, are very important. You know that the will that you have to uh, see things through and um, understand that you can't control things and you can only respond to them in the best way you can and the way you've been trained um, is important. So how does this really kind of apply? Well, think about like um, you're working some game and it's it's a really slow game. You know, there's no time limit or whatever it might be, and it's a very slow. Uh, tedious kind of game. 
Well, in those kind of games, you have to understand that, you know, you can sit there and complain about it in your mind or, you know, you shouldn't be going to, to complain to other people and you, you shouldn't really be talking to your partner very much and shouldn't be complaining to them. You might do it afterward. But during the game, you have to understand that, okay, I'm going to work on my, you know, my mental work here as far as my my concentration. Um, you know, you're working on, you know, I don't know, your foot footwork on a potential double play or just taking plays at first base or any of those kind of things, right? So you control that. That's how you might respond to it. You know, you're going to uh, make sure you know the count on every every pitch or something like that to try to get yourself through that particular situation. Um, you know, every once in a while, uh, hopefully frequently, but it doesn't seem like it happens that much, we want to have that very well played game that you know just moves along at a nice pace and um, the players are making good plays and doing good things out there and nobody's really complaining or anything those things are great but unfortunately that doesn't happen um, that frequently in baseball especially this year 2020 when um, players got a late, late start and you know there was some bad baseball going on out there I'm sure all of us have experienced that all right so, you know, we've all been with the, those guys that uh, like to complain, you know, um, and everything's always, you know, the end of the world or something like that. We don't like working with those guys. Don't be that guy, right? Be the guy that just like, it is what it is, and I'm going to do the best I can. And every game you work, no matter what level or um, how the game might work out, is, is you know, just as important. We've all heard the old axiom that, you know, you never know who's watching and that's why you should work every game the same way. And that's definitely true. But I think it's just more of a, a personal pride that you should work every game and try to give every game the same attention. This gets difficult if you're working a whole bunch of games over a weekend, like in the tournament. Um, you know, that, that you know we're human. It's going to be tough to do that. But that should be the goal. You work every game the same way. What, you know, you're working the plate. You're working the bases. You're giving it the same concentration. Um, you're using the same mechanics. You're trying to do everything the correct way, um, because you want people that if they if they see you coming to work their game, they know that no matter what, you're always going to give the same effort. You know, this high level effort. That's what you want. And so I think that's what a stoic umpire does you know they um, take each game for what it is and do the best they can with that and uh, manage it that the best the best that they can so I, I thought I just, I just wanted to share that stuff with you guys I, I thought that um, it definitely applies I think it kind of sums up the way I kind of look at things you know I know there's guys that you know they're they're bigger or stronger or faster or this or that or you know maybe their eyesight's a little bit better or or they're the right age, or whatever it is, you know, they have the right look. There's lots of people that have lots of things over me as an umpire. Um, but one thing that you can always control is how you uh, take to a game and, and your concentration and what you do and working on those things. You know, nobody can really take that stuff away from you. So if you can do that, you can be, that, that's kind of how you become the best umpire that you can for whatever skill set you have and whatever you end up developing. So keep those things in mind the next time that you uh, walk out onto a field to try to be the a stoic umpire.
Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Last week, I got an email from Robert Fobian, uh, an umpire out of Virginia, because uh, he's sent me some emails on a few occasions. He sent me another one this week, and he's got several interesting uh, topics in there that I'd like to address. Um, one of them being uh, the strike zone that he has been trying to work um, or has been working um, during the, the COVID times with the COVID mechanics where they're calling the balls and strikes from B or C, you know, calling it from the field. And um, he has noticed that uh, himself and others in his area have been calling the zone maybe two or three inches higher than normal. And he says in his email, we also see all of the catchers and their framing moves now that we don't see that we don't see from behind the plate. I've told a lot of coaches this summer that if they want to want those calls on the edges of the zone to have the catcher stick those pitches. When they pull it back into the zone, they're telling everyone at the ballpark, most importantly me, that they don't think it's a strike either. If and when we get back to pre-COVID mechanics, I'm going to be very, very interested to see how umpires will return to calling balls and strikes from behind the plate. Will, uh, will we be more consistent, less consistent, or about the same as we were from behind the mound? Now, this is um, Robert's first, you know, he was umpiring before, and this is his first season back on, you know, full-size field and everything um, for for a while and so I think that there, there's definitely valuable lessons um, for umpires. You know, if when you're calling traditional balls and strikes from behind the catcher, and then when you're on the the bases, to see what other umpires call, what seems to be acceptable for teams and batters and players and everybody else at that level, how they react. Um, those things are valuable and he's kind of losing that a little bit right now I think because you're not being able to have the experience of calling him from behind the catcher unfortunately hopefully that happens next year um two or three inches higher um you know the height of the strike zone obviously we have the strike zone it's set in our rule books um but I think we all should know that based on the level and you know particularly the velocity of the pitchers the height of the strike zone does vary, right? I mean, if I'm working a, um, I don't know, a 13U game, uh, which is probably going to be on a slightly smaller field, like 55-foot mound or something like that, you know, you might get a kid here and there that throws it pretty good from there. But, man, you can get away with a little bit higher strike zone there, you know, just under the letters, man, you know, or maybe right at the letters. You can probably get that. And sometimes you need to because those kids don't throw that many strikes frequently. But if you're working like, um, I say, higher level high school ball and up, and you get some kids that they can bring it pretty good, um, you got to be legit with those pitches. I'm not saying, you know, you're, you're, it's not the belt or something like that, like it's 1980s, you know, baseball here or something. But it's got to be below the hands, I'd say. That's kind of my rule of thumb. Um, 
so you know that varies a little bit. I mean, I, I know he's working a variety of levels, but I think that that matters. And I think that pitches that you see um, from the field sometimes, you know, you'll see your partner not call a certain pitch a strike. They'll, they'll kind of lay off certain high ones. Um, and if they're consistently doing that, that's fine. But I think you do have to vary that. I mean, around the knees, man, you can get that. I mean, I know it varies from rule set to rule set, but you can be pretty consistent there. Uh, the width of your strike zone, obviously the lower level you go, you got to be a little bit more lenient on what you can get. Um, you know, when you're working, when you're working behind the catcher, you, you can really see if you're, if you're zoned in and your mechanics are good back there. Um, you, you can see if it's an inch or so off for sure. You should be able to see that you're tracking it in. And I know you're saying, Robert, that you can't see if, if they're pulling pitches on you, that's where they're moving it. Right. Well, you should be seeing that when you're behind the catcher, you know, because you should be watching it into the glove and you should be seeing what they do at the end there and the finish of, of the pitch. Okay. So next time you're back there, make sure you are seeing that because I've had (laughs) many conversations with catchers over the years, you know, this year included, where I tell them, quit pulling pitches on me. Just catch the ball. Catch it and present it. I want to give you as many strikes as I can. I mean, because, I don't know, there's always this weird misconception that umpires don't want to call strikes. I mean, we all want to call strikes, right, guys? I mean, strikes make the game go faster. There's no reason not to call strikes. So, you know, I, I guess... um you got to kind of see what works for people and what doesn't. We've been out there where, where we have a partner struggling from behind the plate, and we see that it doesn't work. Particularly if they're they're getting pitches that are you know, you know, below the well below the knees, you know, in between the knees and the ankles or something for strikes. Also, you get in trouble calling pitches too high at times. You got to be consistent with what is hittable for a particular level. We can be a little bit more lenient on what we have, you know, in and out, right? Because nobody really sees that except for maybe some of our partners. Um, if they're, you know, working B and C, they kind of can see that. But still, you know, your angle is only so good right there. Um, so, yeah, some things to think about. Um, I don't know. I, I bet you you guys will be more consistent um, once you get back behind the plate. That's my guess. If it were so good... To be calling balls and strikes from behind the mound, and people were so consistent from for doing that, then umpires would have been doing that, you know, 50, 60, 100 years ago, right? Um, you can see what's going on better if you're behind the uh, the catcher for sure, and so I think that this experience that you guys will have, particularly the newer umpires like yourself, to this level, will maybe benefit from that. Hopefully, in the future that you got that perspective and, and you know what it looks like because, um, you know, a lot of umpiring is perception and uh, making the obvious calls and making the call that it looks like. That's why guys don't get a certain pitch when they, uh, you know, they'll take a pitch that maybe is close to the knees and they jab it down into the ground and make it look like a ball. And maybe it was right around there. Well, you know, it's a ball. He made it look like a ball. Um, or when they're really pulling pitches, you know, from way off the plate, um, then they're making it look like a ball too. Whereas if they just caught it, maybe they might get certain certain cat, you know, certain uh, calls on those kind of things. So definitely a few things to to think about. And when you're watching um, baseball on TV, which we still have right now, 
um, kind of see what they're doing that way too, you know, and, and see what pitches they're getting. I, I know that the strike zone for a, a professional game is uh, a little bit different than, you know, some of the stuff that we work. But uh, as far as what they get at the knees and what they get in and out, uh, those things are kind of important, you know. Uh, they're, they're very similar as well. I mean, they, they have a little bit lower strike zone. They're not getting that, they're not calling the 98-mile-an-hour um, fastball right underneath the armpits, you know, um, in Major League Baseball. But um, otherwise, you can kind of get an idea for that as well. So interesting topic. Thanks for sharing that, Robert. Robert had another suggestion, uh, knowing that I do some assigning uh, throughout the summer and and during the spring as well for um, high school baseball here in the uh, springtime and then um, travel baseball, you know, and tournaments uh, during the summertime. And I've learned a lot of my assigning, most most all of it actually, from um, the big assigner in, in this area of West Michigan, Bruce Doan Jr. And Bruce has been assigning for a long, long time. Uh, and he assigns uh, from, you know, in this area, Division II NCAA, Division III NCAA, NAIA, uh, junior college ball. Now he does um, varsity baseball in this area, and he signs a whole bunch of stuff as far as um, summer tournaments and things like that around here. And he's uh, a former, you know, Division One umpire and went to umpire school and has, you know, worked all over different places in the country and, um, you know, knows a lot about umpiring, uh, runs umpire camps here, and also does, um, you know, he's like the biggest signer over here, uh, for sure, and has, you know, his uh, a very good reputation for that. So I've kind of been under his wing, learning how to do things and how to approach things. And it's kind of like, you know, how you learn how to umpire. Well, you got to kind of learn how to assign. But the big thing was, first, learning how to use um, Arbiter the Arbiter program, which um, I picked up pretty quickly and, and I've gotten used to that and how that works. Um, and so Robert's question was, so when you sit down to assign slots uh, to umpire you know, for, for games, what's going through your mind? And if he were in my association, what could I do to make sure that he's high on my list for assignments. And so a lot of stuff I'm going to share is um, things I've obviously learned from my experiences the last year plus doing this and and things I've learned from um, Bruce and things I've learned as an umpire to make sure that assigners want to assign you games, you know, Um, because I've been fairly successful with that as well, I guess. You know, I've I've moved along pretty well and obviously not tick too many people off uh, because I keep, you know, getting chances, I guess, right? So one of Bruce's big things is, um, and saying he says all the time, is you got to take care of business. And I find myself saying this too. And taking care of business um, helps you to get assignments uh, in our associations, right? That means your blocks are updated. You can be counted on, all right? So if I give you a game, you're going to accept it in a timely manner, we think within 24 hours, but actually, in a lot of ways, we feel like it should be quicker than that. You're not going to try to give it back to us, and uh, you're going to show up on time. We're not going to hear anything about that, and you're going to do the best job you can. 
And if there is some issues, you're going to let us know about it so we don't get blindsided with things. You know, and you're going to work it the best you can. All right, that's kind of uh, what you need to do to get assignments and to keep getting assignments from us. How do you, you know, how, how does it look when we, um, when we go give assignment? Well, first thing we do, and I do this based on what Bruce does too, we try to give assignments to people that are reasonably close to the location of the game. Now, this might be different. Well, it is different in um, higher level baseball, particularly, you know, higher level Division One baseball and also D2, where they try to get the best umpires there. And if, if there's a guy that's a much better umpire that has to drive twice as far, they're willing to give the game to that guy, right? But for travel league games and tournaments and high school games here, we... Um, we don't want some guy having to drive forever. I mean, if, if there's a similar game that's closer to his house or her house, if, if it's a lady umpire, um, then we'd rather you just, you know, be able to go there. I mean, nobody wants to drive forever to, to do, you know, a high school game or whatever it might be. Any kind of game, really. I mean, if he can be closer, right? So we look at that. Um, then in the Arbiter program, it shows who's got some, you know, how many games you've got at that particular level and, you know, how many games, you know, have that week. It, it kind of gives you some numbers there. I mean, I don't, I don't need to go into all the details about that, but it kind of shows it. You can kind of read it pretty quickly and know that. So you you don't want to give somebody, like, all the games and somebody else not very many. So you try to spread them around a little bit. You see how many games somebody has, how close they are. That figures in, too. Then you start actually seeing the names of who's closest. You can kind of narrow it down that way. And does it matter? Um with the guys that have tried to turn back games, guys that have declined games that you've given them, uh, guys that seem to have some issues that there are always some there's some kind of problem that you're dealing with with that particular person. Oh yeah, all those things matter. If you do that stuff enough, and there's enough guys available, um, even if you're way closer or something like that, you are not going to be selected for that game. And that's the way it works. I mean, this is human nature too. I mean, the guys are their problems. Why do we want to continue to have problems with somebody? Unfortunately or fortunately, I guess you could look at it for umpires sometimes. At certain levels, um, you know, we, we don't have that many umpires. You know, there might be a certain day where there's only so many guys available. It's a very busy day or a lot of guys have blocks and, and they're not available. And um, even that, you know, so we see the problem guy there. But, you know, really... He's the only person we've got. So you got to kind of use him. Um, if you are a problem person, you know, the, the more umpires there are, like in college baseball, there's more umpires than they need in college baseball. So if you are a problem, you will not get games. Whereas a lot of high school umpires can get away with that in lots of parts of this country because they don't have enough umpires. And that goes for other sports too. But, you know, I'm just talking about baseball here, right? So, yeah. You know, what am I looking for? Now, do you have to be the best umpire to get a certain assignment? Heck no, you don't have to be. Sometimes they want to give guys a chance, right? Um, you think this guy's been working. Oh, I know this guy went to a camp. I heard something good about this guy. I talked to another umpire and they said some good stuff about them. I'm going to give him an opportunity, you know, throw something his way, see how he does, you know, which is basically um, for a lot of high school stuff or other things. You don't hear anything bad. All right. Now, if you're working college ball, um, you know, you get evaluated and um, sometimes you get evaluated by your 
your um, fellow umpires and you get evaluated by the coaches. And uh, so, yeah, they're going to see how you did. But if it's a high school game, yeah, you get evaluated by the coaches. Assigners, we don't see that stuff. We only hear something from the other umpires if something went wrong. Unless, you know, we specifically call them, which we might do. Hey, how do you do out there? What happened, you know? Um, what do you think he needs to work on? What did he do well? That kind of stuff. But when you're in the midst of a season and there's all, you know hundreds of games going on, it's, it's hard to do that sometimes. All right? So those are some of the basic things that I kind of look at um, to try to help people out. I mean, you do look at the level. Like if I'm doing travel ball in the summertime, you know, I have a lot of, I have several high school age guys that work games. I give them some of the younger aged games. But, you know, sometimes some of these 10U coaches are more troublesome than the 15U coaches, right? I mean, they think they're playing, you know, Game 7 of the World Series or something like that. I don't know. And they start getting on people, acting like it's the most, you know, well, it is always the most important game in the world to them. But they don't have a very good perspective on things sometimes. And they'll give a bunch of garbage to some, you know, 16, 17-year-old kid or whatever. Or, you know, even... Even some of the college kids, you know, if they're you know, 18 to 22, it, it's hard for them to stand up to some grown man and, and eject him from a game, especially if they've never done it. And a lot of times in these lower-level games, they're working by themselves. So I try to, you know, they got to have some of those games. Some of those games are ones that are there for them to fill. They want to make the money, you know, during the summer. It's almost like a summer job for them. So throw that their way. But also I try to pair them up with um, – veteran umpires that might be able to help them you know let them do the plate or let them do the bases and um, have that veteran umpire uh, work with them and they can see how they work and they can talk to them hopefully in between before and after games and get a little bit better we've had good success with that we we need to be able to do that but then there's a point and i was talking to some of my uh you know umpiring brethren about um Letting some of the newer guys or young guys, guys that are in similar situation, maybe similar age uh, and similar experience level, they need to kind of work um, with one another sometimes too and kind of grow up together, I guess, or grow into the umpiring profession together and kind of battle it through on their own as well. So that's kind of important as well because, you know, you don't always want to be the guy that seems like you're under pressure trying to perform and not screw up. And um, I do that with myself where I, I will put myself with uh, some newer guys or younger guys just to try to help them out and see how they work. And I know sometimes they get nervous. Um, you know, they've said that, I guess. And, and I was like, hey, you know, I'm not like judging. Everything's not judged on like one play, even if you messed it up, okay? You know, you, you, you're out here to learn. I mean, I'm out here to try to tell you some things that maybe some other people don't tell you. Either they don't know or they don't feel like telling you. And that's why it's, you know, it's good for them to work with uh, people of similar ability and experience levels. But also sometimes you need to work with those other people because they're going to tell you things that maybe nobody's told you yet. Um, and it'll hopefully make you a little bit better. Or they'll see you do something that maybe other people see you do and either they don't know any better or, or you know, they don't care or something. For example, uh, a week or so ago I was working with a newer, younger umpire and he had a play at first base that um, um, pushed him toward the first base coach's box. You know, ground ball play, um, you know, you know, first baseman coming off in between the first and second baseman. And uh, pitcher was trying to cover. And he took the play from foul ground toward the, the coach's box. 
and he he could have stayed in in bounds or in, you know in play in in fair territory, uh, but he didn't. You know he got the call right, and you know that wasn't really the issue. But after the game, I talked to him I'm like, yes, why are you taking that play from foul territory? So oh, I got to kind of push it. I know you're going to say something about that. Yeah, well, we don't ever really need to do that, especially in two man. We talked about this, you know, you know, and I know he's seen guys on TV do that kind of stuff. And I reminded him, like, let's say he throws that ball away and it gets by you and that guy in first, you know, goes to second base. How are you going to make that call? You running down there, you know, right up his rear end there trying to make that call? He's like, yeah, you're right. I said, are you going to beat him there and get ahead of the play? I mean, I know you're young, but I don't know. And he's he's going to have about 30 feet on you, you know, as far as a head start. I don't think you're going to be able to do that. So... I said, you know, you can sometimes get away with that kind of stuff in three and four men, even though that's very frowned upon nowadays as well. But you can't do that in two man, you know. So we'll talk about that. Now, if he's working with um, some other umpires, maybe they say something. I know a lot of guys that would, but there's a lot of guys that wouldn't. And you need to work with some of those guys so that, that they do that for you, right? But anyway, I, I digress. I guess the biggest thing to keep in mind as far as uh, being on somebody's radar and getting assignments is not being a problem. Don't be that guy. Don't be the guy that um, always is calling somebody up and you know some tragedy again happened in their life and they have to get off an assignment. That is number one. That just irritates the heck of assigners because we only get paid to assign a game once. And then if you, you know, we think we have it all set and then you call up and we have to sign it again, especially if we're short guys that day, you know, that that's filed away in the back of our minds. Um, don't be that guy that always has some issue going on in the game, you know, has always had certain problems and things like that. Um, be somebody that um, can be counted on, can be counted on to do what needs to be done. And, um, you know, just like a good umpire Good umpires are not noticed, you know. They just do a good job and they get off the field. Well, good umpires, as far as the signers go, um, is a very similar type of thing. You know, they they kind of do their thing. You hear some good things about them, and they don't cause any trouble. You know, you give them an assignment, you go look on Arbiter, and man, within an hour, that that thing is accepted. You don't have to like wonder. You don't have to call them up. Hey, are you going to accept this game? You don't have to call or text or email whatever the heck you want to do and ask them what's going on. Did you check this stuff? You know, you can count on guys to do stuff. So that's number one. Um, and guys that are willing to work any kind of game you give them. I mean, they're happy to work that hot shot kind of game or whatever it might be, whatever the primo games are for your association. But they're also willing to, you know, work that lesser game that maybe not everybody else wants to do. They're willing to work with other people. They're not like above everybody else. At least they're thinking that way. They might be as far as their ability level. They might think that, you know, you, you should have some confidence out there, but they're not like, well, I don't work those kind of games. I only work varsity games or I only work this level of college games or those kind of things. They're willing to do whatever you need them to do. Um, and then, you know, guys that do that, they get paid back, man. There's no doubt about it. Guys that will work, you know, they work that freshman game for a high school association when, you know, they had the day off and there was nobody else available and the assigner asked them to do it, man, when there is a, a better game that comes along, they if, if, if it's within the 
the area or whatever it might be, you do that. I've done that many times where uh, I'll give give somebody else a, a game when I can because I remember that they helped me out when it mattered. And on the flip side of that, there's been guys where they're available. I see several guys available, and they just declined a game or they gave a game back, and I give it to somebody else. So, um, you know, a signer's a human. Understand that. Put yourself in their situation. What would you do if somebody, you know, screwed you over a couple times on things? And You know, you're going to learn your lesson sometimes. You keep playing with fire on certain guys. Um, you're always going to get burned. So you got to make sure you um, pick the guys that you can count on. So hopefully that answers your question. Those are some things that I've learned and things that um, I keep in mind when I'm trying to assign. I'm also trying to be a good umpire for the guys that assign me to games. Robert had a lengthy email, and he had another situation in which he was trying to work these two-man COVID mechanics in which the um, the plate umpire is behind um, the batter. You know, So if it's a right-handed batter, it's first baseline extended, left-handed batter, third baseline extended, they have their mask on and stuff. And they're up there to make fair foul calls and obviously plays at the plate and, and those kind of things. So he had a interesting situation that he wanted my opinion about now i have not worked at covid mechanics i mean for good or bad i guess i've been just working straight two man um this year but i i can kind of think of you know this and and run it through my mind so i kind of understand so here's a situation um he was working the plate so he had a, a more veteran umpire that was working the bases and calling the balls and strikes and everything from behind the mound and um he was a plate umpire. There's a right-handed batter at the plate. Um, he hits a, a slicing ball, a slicing kind of blooper that starts out left to first baseline and then starts slicing to the right. So he pulled his mask off, busted up the line to make the call, and then the runner, the first baseman, and the right fielder all screen him from the ball, and he loses sight of the ball when it's about four feet off the ground. He makes his best judgment, and he points it fair, and he goes for a double. And, of course, the, you know, the defensive dugout uh, gives him some stack about that. They thought it was foul, of course. Um, and he called time. He goes to his partner, uh, who, who, like I said, is more of a veteran guy, and um, you know, trying to get the call right and asked him what he had, if he had anything there. And, and his partner said, um, you called the ball. I have the runner, and I saw the touch at first and the slide in the second. Um, said, you called it fair. I have nothing to dispute that, and we'll go with your call. And they did, and... Uh, game resume and he didn't have any trouble so he mentioned you know as we know in two men we we always do have compromises um but on a fair file whether you're working traditional two men or not i mean that is your call man i mean you gotta see the best you can and um like my mentors particularly bruce stone has said on many occasions to me occasions to me and others um you gotta call what's expected in that kind of situation so and also, you know, sometimes it's a split-second decision. you got to give the benefit of the doubt to the people that deserve it. Um, if, you know, that, like, for example, if there's a bang-bang play, a guy made a diving play, he gets up, whips it the first, it's a bang-bang play. You think the first baseman, you know, made a nice stretch and stayed on the, 
on the bag from what you can see, but man, maybe his, his, you know, cleat barely came off the bag. I don't know. It's hard to tell. You get that out. Okay. However, if there's a ground ball to the shortstop and he kicks it around and finally, you know, puts a fork in the thing and picks it up and throws it the first and he kind of pulls the guy off the bag and it's pretty close. Um, and you're pretty sure that he, you know, he probably beat it or whatever, you know, in that split second, maybe you give the benefit of the doubt to the runner because, you know, if he just freaking, you know, feels the ball cleanly, he's out by two steps, right, or more. So you call him safe. I mean, and so in this situation, if somebody hits a decent ball and it goes and guys are running and it looks pretty close to the fit, man, you know, if your gut tells you that it was fair, that's what you go with. And especially you said on this field, it was uh, it wasn't lined and things like that. So hey, man, you, you do the best you can with that. It sounds like you know you made the right call, but in this situation, this is probably not a situation whether it's COVID two man or traditional two man to go to your partner. There's no way he can see that, okay? Or if he does, if he well, let's say he thought it was foul. What, you going with that? I mean, that that's a good way to get an argument going, okay? You went to your partner. He thought it was probably foul, though he can't be sure because he's in the middle of the of the field, and you were somewhat, you know, you're on the line the best you can trying to get a look at it and made the best call you can, and you're going to go to him. You can't do that, man. I mean, <laughs> it's, you know, if if you had another umpire on the line with you, like if you're in three or four man or six man or something like that, then maybe you guys could get together because you're both on the line. Maybe there's something one of you saw that the other guy didn't or something like that. Um, but you can't do that in that situation. You got to just go with the, that, that thing there. And I know you're trying to get the call right, but on those fair fouls, you know, you got to stick with what you got. Um, it's another thing, you know, also just on the safe out, let's say you had to play at the plate. You called a guy safe or out. You're not going to him. Did you think he was safe or out? No. Now, if, if you want to go to him, if you thought that there was some kind of interference or obstruction or something like that that happened on the play that maybe you didn't see, um, that's fine. But, you know, the the initial call is kind of your call. So um, I guess we got to make sure we, we look at when, we're, when we should get help. And I'm all about getting it right. I'm not afraid to go and ask help for help or someone's opinion on that but like if you came to me on that situation i would say you're right on the line man i I can't see it from over here we've got to go with what you have i would say the same thing to you man um there's no way i can make that call over here there's been plenty of times where i've been in the field and i see a ball rip down the third baseline or first baseline and it looks pretty close and in one way or another i think man that looks like it's fair and foul ball okay or i thought it was foul it's like He's pointing fair, and nobody says anything. He obviously got it right. You can't really tell, man. It's hard to tell those two or three feet when you have a, a, a terrible angle. That's why that guy makes that call. So um, it is about that, but you just got to do that. Now, the question you should ask yourself, and I know it's hard with these two-man COVID mechanics, is where did you take that play from? Where were you on the line? Um all three of these guys were right on the line? I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe they were. I mean, you can get that weird situation where the worst case scenario happens. Maybe this was it. But um, 
you have to ask yourself after something like that where you didn't get a view is could I have been in a better spot to get a view? I really don't know the answer to that because I wasn't there and I didn't see the play. But if you think, you know, maybe I was too far up or too far back or I didn't get set in time or whatever it might be. I didn't get my mask off in time. I need to do those things better. Um, then you can learn something from it. I mean, maybe it was just one of those fluky things and you did everything right and there was nothing you could do about it. But uh, definitely an interesting play, um, something to think about for sure as far as um, when we go for help and um, when are the right times to do such things. It kind of reminds me of a play I had the other day in a men's league game in which um, I was working the bases, so I'm in B, and uh, there's a pickoff throw to first, and the guy gets picked off. So we get a rundown. Rundown back and forth. There's, um, you know, uh, uh, an older, very slow guy playing first base who doesn't you know he's lost a lot of his athletic ability over the years let's just put it that way okay so they're throwing it back and forth eventually they they do the rundown with several throws and the guy's tagged out and he's out as this rundown is happening um the shortstop who's can be a bit of an issue but that's a different story he's like yelling that he's out of the baseline and so of course you know he seems to think that the baseline is, you know, directly between the two bases or something. And, and as we know, as we should know, if we don't, we should look up the rules and make sure we understand this. Every time that runner turns and goes toward the other base, he reestablishes his baseline. And, you know, you know, the rule of thumb is it's a step and a reach away from the fielder. And then if he's out of that kind of area, then he's out of the baseline. You should call him out. Well, this first baseman tried to reach for him, and he did not step at all. He just kind of reached his arm out and did not tag him. It was pretty easy for this other older gentleman who's still got some of his athleticism to avoid him. So I did not, I'm not going to give you the benefit of the doubt on that. You know, I I didn't call it. You got to get him out. So they did. And I had a little words to say with the shortstop after that. But on this situation, would I go to my partner for that? Who's, who, though I do remember, I don't recall him coming up to first base to cover it like he should have. But even so, this is my call. I'm not going to, I can see where the baseline is. I'd move myself in there into an angle. I could see, you know, where the tags were trying to come from when they tried to tag him. I'm not going to go for help on that. That's kind of my call. I'm right on top of that. And my partner, if he's running up, he's not going to have a very good view. I'm not even going to ask about that if they did. Nobody asked me to, but I wouldn't do that. I mean, there's this, it's kind of like, you know, sometimes it's just your call. And uh, you've got to be confident and say, no, he was not out of the baseline. That's basically what I said, you know, and they got him out anyway. You just have to kind of stick with it because we don't want to use it as a crutch to, um, you know, try to see if our call was correct. It, it kind of makes you look indecisive. We don't, we don't ever want to look indecisive on the baseball field. Sometimes, you know, stuff happens, but we want to avoid that at all times if we can. And, you know, you obviously want to you great mechanics and be in a good, good position to see something and have great timing to make a great call. But you want to seem confident in that as well. And, uh, you know, sometimes those things don't always work out for us, but we want to make sure that if we um, make a call that we're decisive and confident in it. And so if we go too often, especially when we don't need to uh, for help, um, we can definitely appear to be indecisive on things. So you only go when you really need to do that. All right. But very good question and uh, some good stuff to think about. Thanks, man. I've been asked to talk about equipment. 
and, and I know I've done this um, in the past on the show, um, and I, I've mentioned that I've, I've kind of become a Force 3 guy. I have Force 3 mask. I have Force 3 chest protector. I have Force 3 shin guards. Um, and I, I, I like the, the equipment a lot. I've had two Force 3 masks that I, I like. I, I got rid of the one because I, it was um, like a silver one, and I wanted to have a, a black one. And they had the version 2 that came out. So I, I sold the other one like on eBay or whatever for pretty decent money. And there's nothing wrong with that. I liked it. I just wanted the newer version with a little bit different style to it, you know. Um, let's start with chest protectors. I've got a younger umpire that I've worked with that has like kind of a, almost like a catcher's um, chest protector. And he took a shot earlier this year with a ball, um, really got, got some bruised ribs and knocked the wind out of him. Um, chest protectors, um, are the number two most important equipment that you have. Well, some people say, I guess your cup is your number one most important equipment. That might be true, but I'd say it's your face mask, your chest protector and your shin guards. But you know, well, obviously the cup is very important, <laughs> All right. but, uh, chest protector is important, man. You got to feel confident back there that if you take a foul ball off of your midsection, that, um, you're not going to feel it too badly. That's the idea. And um, I've had other chest protectors in the past. I mean, when I first started, just like a lot of guys, you get the cheapo one, you don't realize what you kind of need, especially when you start working, you know, more of a regular baseball with uh, guys throwing hard and and balls coming off the bat quite hard. Um, So I had gotten the uh, a Wilson chest protector before, and a lot of guys love the West Vest. And um, I think that is a good chest protector. Um, it, it definitely, you know, it's got good protection to it. I like the, uh, you know, the, the, the plastic, I like something hard and stiff that can protect you. Okay. Um, you know, not something like, uh, what a catcher might wear you need something that's the ball's going to bounce off of pretty well. The thing I, I personally don't like about the West Vest is I don't know if it, you know, protects, you know, like down by your stomach area so well, um, to me, I'm not a real big guy, so I need something that's going to fit snug because you need your chest protector to fit snugly, particularly you know by your collarbones and up under your, your neck, but also cover like the whole front area of you that is exposed to the ball and also have good shoulder uh, protection. And that was part of the problem too with this uh, young umpire had. He, he's got like basically nothing for his, his shoulder protection. And he takes a ball off of that and that hurts like heck, man, and you, and you will learn. So, you know, you can get, you know, West Vest, you know, for, you know, 180 to $200 usually. And they have some other products that are pretty good as well. And the thing about, you know, the Force 3 is it's like $280 for a good Force 3 um, for, you know, their chest protector, which I paid. I mean, and it's lasted me several years now. I think I've had at least five years now and still in real good shape. And uh, always after I work, I let it kind of air out. I might spray some, you know, breeze or something on it if I need to. But I like it to air out so it doesn't get like mildew and stuff on it. But it's it's made out of Kevlar, man. It's like you're wearing a bulletproof vest up there. And when you take a shot, you know, something that's like over 90 miles an hour or 100 miles an hour off of a foul ball or something, and it hits it that first time, and you just hear this thud, and you it feels like somebody just kind of playfully kind of punched you or something. Um, and it doesn't really hurt too much. 
uh, then you are very happy that you spent that money on it. I, I like it because it's a little bit lower profile. Um, they have a new harness that you know I added to mine that's on the ones that you could buy now that makes it fit nice and snug. And um, I've had great luck with it. It's got great shoulder protection. I've gotten drilled on the shoulders a few times with it, and I've had um, no trouble at all. It's definitely saved me from some injuries or some massive bruises on several occasions. So, you know, obviously, you know, I like that. But uh, whatever you do, you know, when you're looking at a chest protector, especially if you need to upgrade your equipment, you need to have something that protects those shoulders, will fit snug, and will take a 100-mile-an-hour ball off of it and not leave you damaged. That's kind of the main thing as far as uh, chest protectors. Now, masks. Like I said, I think masks are the most important piece of equipment you have because you got to protect your head and your brain and uh, concussions are the, the probably the number one way to end your umpiring career right i mean even if you go out there and you you break your leg god forbid you know doing something something weird happens yeah you, you'll probably be out for the rest of the season but once your leg heals up uh you'll be back out there right but uh, if you get a, a concussion or enough concussions and you can't work the plate anymore and, you know, you got to be able to work the plate in bases, uh, you're done, man. You're done. you, you got to be able to do that. So as you know, I like the Force 3 mask because I think it is the best mask to protect you from concussions. And I've gotten um, several good shots on my mask and I think that it has protected me from concussions, the two of them that I've had. Yeah, it's a $170 mask. Um, and it's not perfect as far as, you know, it's not the lightest mask, but I figure that the extra weight that it has from the springs and different things that they have in there, um, is worthwhile to me because, um, it makes it so that, uh, maybe have less of a chance to get a concussion. No mask is going to always protect you from a concussion. You always have a shot. You go back there, man, you know, when you're working the plate, you know how it is. You, you might go two two weeks worth of games and nothing happens and then one game you get drilled on the arm twice and you get drilled off the face three times you know you don't know how it's going to go um or right underneath the mask sometimes somehow the ball seems to find us there uh, from time to time now there are other good masks out there obviously wilson makes some good ones um you know they make their aluminum umpire masks and their steel umpire mask they vary in price as well um, you know, lightweight is good, but man, you want lightweight that's going to protect you. Um, I know a lot of guys like the hockey style mask. I'm not real. I'm not a real big fan myself of those. Um, cause I like to have the hat and the mask. I like the traditional look. I think it looks better. It looks smooth. It looks more professional that way, but I know major leaguers on down do that. And if you think it gives you more protection then go for that, um, some guys like that because it protects the top and back and sides of their head, but I've never been hit there. I mean, I, I feel like I've got pretty solid mechanics when I'm working the plate and I've never been hit on the side of my head or on top of it. I, I guess things could happen. Um, I see, I, I have seen some umpires that wear like a, a set of regular uh, umpire cap. They wear their, you know, kind of like a batting helmet type thing. You know, that's something you can do. But also the pads you have in there. I know, you know, Force 3 Defender pads, and you should use the pads that are designed for the mask. They are... Um, you know, have Kevlar lining in them, and they are part of what makes the mask uh, perform the way that it's supposed to perform. Um, so that's, you know, extremely important as well is the kind of, you know, you want something that's comfortable and everything, but also that's going to give you good protection. And they talk about it, I guess they tell them now in the minor leagues that you should really, um, you should really replace your, 
the pads on your mask every year, you know, because you take some shots and maybe you work enough games, you're going to take several shots throughout the season. And, you know, but it costs like 25 bucks for pretty much any of them at the most to um, protect uh, or to replace those pads and everything. I guess some of the, like the Dynalite pads might be a little bit more expensive. Um, those might go for like 50 bucks or whatever, but a lot of pads are in, you know, $25 range for that. And, and like I say, Dynalite, that's a, a really good mask too, if you like it. I think it's worthwhile to spend that extra money that you might need on um, on a good mask, one that's comfortable for you. Um, you can, you know, fit it properly on, you know, the kind of hat that you like to wear, and it gives you that protection so that you aren't going to be getting, you know, concussions or at least have a less of a chance to do that. A lot of guys like to wear the, the throat protectors. I've tried throat protectors before. I, I'm, I don't like them. I don't wear one now. Um, a lot, you know, masks frequently have um, a bit of a throat protection that comes down anyway um, on there. And if I'm, you know, set up right, I have less of a chance to like take a foul ball off my throat. And also, 99% of the games that I work are not wood bat games. So I'm not going to get like a, you know, a splinter of a bat coming back to sitting off my throat protector or something either like Steve Yeager or something back in the day when he started to invent that, you know, for catchers and everything. So I don't like it dangling down. I feel like it like hits into my my shirt, my chest protector and everything. And I don't like the way that feels. It kind of distracts me. I've tried that before. I've tried the shorter ones. I don't like the long ones. I know, I mean, if, if you can wear it, I guess it gives you more protection, all the power to you. But, you know, it's not really my thing. So I don't, I don't really do the um, the throat protector. But again, protection is the number one thing here. You know, buy the mask that you can afford or, you know, spend a little bit more if you can to get the kind of mask that is going to protect you from getting a concussion so you can have as long an umpiring career as you possibly can. And finally, um, shin guards. And like I say, I have the Force 3 that have the Kevlar lining in them, and I really like them. They're a little more low profile. I like that. I don't like shin guards that like really are noticeable in your umpiring pants. Um, I know we wear our plate pants, and, and they should be less noticeable, but I don't like the ones that are sticking out. You can almost see the outlines of the of the shin guards there. So like that, they give um, good ankle protection and i've taken lots of shots off of my force three shin guards and i don't feel anything some of them you know like i have a catcher or a batter or somebody turn around, hey you okay yep equipment's working good now they're like 120 bucks but they're not necessarily the most expensive shin guards i mean the wilson pro platinum shin guards are you know, like 140 bucks or um, the pro gold guards are like 130 so there are more expensive shin guards out there that are, are very good as well if you like those but um, like I said, you know, if you take a ball so hard off your um, shin and it breaks your leg or something, uh, you'll be done for the season. But, um, you know, you can come back. You, you might want to get some better shin guards. <laughs> Maybe that'll you'll learn your lesson there. But um, if you got to skimp out on some money and you got to go with some, you know, I don't know, lesser shin guards that cost like 50 bucks or something like that, um, Champ Pro or whatever the heck might be out there, um, then I guess that's where you skimp out. Um, buy a better mask. Spend a little bit more money on your chest protector that works better and skimp out on your shin guards, I guess. But get yourself some some umpire shin guards. Don't use, and you cannot use catcher's shin guards on. They're not going to fit underneath your pants anyway. And you certainly can't put them over the top of them. But um, there's a few good ones out there. If you're able to go to some kind of store that has them, you can try them on or you go to an umpire clinic. This is the best thing to do, clinic or camp or something. And which one of the um, 
Umpire Supplying Stores is there, or the one in your area, and they have several, you know, they have shirts and masks and chest protectors and shin guards, and you can kind of look at them and maybe try them on your leg and see how they, how they are or talk to the, uh, the people working there and see what they think. Um, that, that might, you know, be worthwhile to do. Even if you're not at the camp, if you just hear about it, you go there and just check out the stuff, that's a good thing to do. It's hard to do that because, like, if you go to your local sporting goods store, they're not going to have all the umpire equipment there. you got to kind of get to the place that sells the official's equipment, which is sometimes a bit of a challenge. Obviously, your colleagues and what they like is also, you know, good information, and you can talk to them and see what kind of things they use and what they like. You know, part of it's the look. We want a certain look out there. We want to look professional, but the uh, protection of our face mask and our chest protector and our shin guards is our number one priority. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Hammer and Umpire podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and the topics I covered. If you'd like me to talk about some other topics that have been on your mind that maybe haven't touched on or um, include some things in the show, please feel free to reach out to me. You can do that at SpinalFusion06 at Yahoo.com. You can find me on Facebook at The Hammer um, Podcast and also on Twitter at Kevin R. Weber. Any of those places, um, I take a look at whatever you might send my way and um, try to get to those topics. As you might notice, I, I've done that on this show. All right. Um, you know, I've had some other segments that I've done in the past that I plan to try to get to in the future. But, uh, you know, I, I, I try to keep a show um, under an hour if I can, because um, I don't know how long of it uh, of uh, I'm going to keep somebody's attention if I keep going over an hour. You know, maybe you only have so much time to listen to my show. So I know I've done umpire spotlights. I've done different things with uh, rules and other types of things like that uh, that I'll get back to, you know. But uh, if I've got enough content to fill a show like I have uh, this week, uh, then I'm just going to go with that and uh, save the other stuff for later. I mean, I, you know, can always do another show, right? I mean, I don't have any um, restrictions. It's my show. I can kind of do whatever the heck I want, right? But uh, I always appreciate any feedback I get, and I'm still looking for some more people. I've had a couple in the past to uh, reach out to me and favor the show on the Anchor app, which is all free to do, and leave me a voice message on there. You can do it 60 seconds or less. Sometimes that's easier than writing an email or, or reaching out to me on social media, you know? Just leave me some kind of message on there, and I'd love to be able to use that. And it's, it's great when I have somebody else's voice on the show, and I can talk about whatever it is that uh, you left me a message about. You know, that's a great way to do it. So, you know, for something that might take you three or four paragraphs or more or or quite a little bit of time to write, which I I don't mind if you write, you might be able to do that in 60 seconds and uh, be done with it. And and then maybe I'll talk about it on the show. There's no maybe about it. If you leave me something, I I will definitely include it in some way or another into the show because I'm certainly looking to do that. Until next time, keep calling strikes.